Welcome to the Creative Community Podcast, where we discuss the intersection between the arts and Israel. I am Ari Engel, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. And today's guest on the pod is an artist, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a manager, a trendsetter, a dream maker, who has worked with artists such as Rick Ross and Tyga, amongst many others. We are excited to welcome Juan G to the Creative Community Podcast today. How are you coping right now? Oh, man, it's the first of all, it's great to be on your show. Thank you for uh, the invitation and to be doing this podcast. I know it's a strange time in the world right now, of course, because we're all under quarantine. Um, and uh, it's just a strange time around the world right now. So there's a lot of uncertainties, uh, but definitely we still have platforms like podcasts and radio where we and the social media that we can all communicate, you know? Nice. And I don't want to spend too much time on the podcast about this, but to spend a little more time on COVID-19, just as it relates to music, how are you seeing artists, you know, handling the tours are canceled? How are they doing sessions? Because doing sessions is difficult. Like, what are you hearing from artists that you're working with or seeing? How are they coping with this sort of thing? Well, well, we all see that the streaming numbers are down right now. Um, streaming numbers are down in the music business. And of course, touring is, is wiped out completely. And we all know that a lot of these artists make 70, sometimes 80% of their revenue off of touring. A lot of artists are trying to calculate that if, if 2020 is going to be a wash for them because a big part of their income, again, is touring. And the revenue is made between June, July, August, September. Um, and we keep hearing there's going to be, there's a lot of rumors that COVID-19 might go into those months. And so we don't really know. But uh, artists are really unhappy right now because their fan base is kind of left hanging because, again, live performances are up with streaming. Um, it's such a powerful component with Spotify and Apple that live performances have been up the last past two to three years. So I think what's going on is I think artists are really sad. They're trying to do everything on their Instagram stories and they're doing a lot of lives um, just to try to stay engaged. And if you watch a lot of the lives on Instagram, if you're on Instagram, DJ D Nice, he got up to almost 150,000, you know, viewers. And but look, you see Justin Bieber, and you see a lot of people, some of the biggest artists in the world, on, uh, you know, live. And before, you wouldn't see a lot of that. You would see a lot of the younger artists, much more involved in live. But even Drake got on and did one with his father. That was that went crazy. But what you're seeing is artists are spending so much time on live now that their fans are not finding it as interesting anymore. So you're not seeing the following there because their fans are just like over it. You know what I mean? But uh, it's just a strange time for artists. They just feel like they can't touch their fans. Yeah, I mean, it's true. The, the one beautiful thing about this is they're at least they're getting all these amazing live streaming performances. But you're right. I even think about it like Vegas residencies. That's a million dollars a night to some DJs. And especially when you get into like summertime. I mean, that sort of revenue loss is pretty nuts. And then there's just the artists that need a tour just to make a living. And those, they're really in trouble because they got to figure out how to make their money for the year if they don't hit the road and tour. So, and then all of a sudden, even when this lets up, people only have so much money. So every artist touring at the same time doesn't really work because it's not like you can go to like every big show all in the month of October, right? Well, you know what? You nailed it, brother. You nailed it and, and you nailed it. That was one of the smartest things I've ever heard anyone say in the last past two weeks, three weeks. And I've talked to a lot of artists and they're like, oh, don't worry. This thing is going to go away by June and we'll all be able to start touring. And I said, wait a minute, let's talk about it. Right. 
I said, you know, Justin Bieber just canceled his tour right before, you know, had to cancel his tour. Yeah. Post Malone was on tour. I said, look, promoters only have so much money around the world. And I said, and that, I said, keep another thing in mind. To promote an artist is coming to town, it takes three to six weeks, sometimes eight weeks to sell concert tickets. I said, so if, if it's June, okay, that means promoter picks up an artist in June and says, we're going to do a show with a Taiga or an ASAP Rocky or, uh, or whoever it is, right? It's going to take minimum four to eight weeks to get that artist to the venue. Now you're clearly into July, August. It's so easy, essentially. Like people are sort of thinking like, oh, it'll be easy when it's over. We'll all hit the road. But it doesn't seem practical, really. Yeah. And, and you, you, you hit on another key point. When you talk about here in Los Angeles, people are not working and people are using their money right now for food and supplies and, and, and lending money to other family members. And we know we, got, we talk about the stimulus money that's coming in and there's a big stimulus talk, but those, that, that money is not going to hit for quite some time. So when, by the time an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old, 21-year-old fan you know, gets back out into the market to spend money on concert tickets and to go see artists, it's probably going to be on the last of their list. It's going to be like clothing, supplies. I just don't know. Oh, and even if you go to the concert, you don't have money for the merch where artists like bank buying the $50 t-shirt and stuff like that. It's going to be a new economy. Anyhow, so take it away from some COVID talk so we don't get too depressing on here. Um, let's talk about you a little bit. So you were born in Haiti yeah. and then what, moved to Brooklyn sometime? What, how old yeah. were you into that? Um, actually, I was born in New York. Okay. I was born in New York, but went back to Haiti. Um, and went, went back to Haiti, but came back to New York uh, when I was uh, three or four years old. Right. Uh, my, my dad just felt that New York was the right move because a big part of the Haitian population, when they move out of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and they come to America, what they usually do is either move to Miami, New York, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, or even Canada. Uh, but for us, my, my dad thought New York would be better, uh, you know, because, of course, I was born there, but he thought that New York would be a great living. And what happened is he found out that the weather in New York, the cold, fierce weather. So my, my, my parents didn't really like the idea of living in New York City. Um, but even though we have deep roots there and a lot of family there, uh, they decided to come out west. But I did leave New York when I was eight years old, nine years old, and then visited every summer for three months. And then when did you decide you wanted to do hip hop and you wanted to become a rapper? Because this is what, the, the, you grew up there, what, the late 80s, early 90s? Early 90s. Well, what happened is hip hop is, um, as you know, hip hop is a global, global force. And at the time that I was coming up, it was a lot of the gangster hip hop. It was a, it was a West Coast, East Coast thing. It wasn't really the South. It wasn't really, you know, the, 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 the South or, you know, guys like Drake from, you know, Canada weren't, weren't, on the, weren't on the scene yet. It was either you were East Coast or West Coast guy, but I was intrigued by hip hop, but I felt kind of like out of place because I was Haitian American. And at that time you didn't have the acons of the world and the Drake's, everything was an East Coast, West Coast thing, but we didn't really have an urban scene, uh, an open-minded international scene for, for rap music. And yeah. so I felt as a Haitian American that I wanted to get involved in the business, but I always felt, out of place because I was the guy that came from the hood in Compton or from South Central. Um, even though I was born in New York, I was still a Haitian guy. So, uh, you know, my cult the culture there was Haitian. And it's not that I had to say I was a Haitian rapper, but I always knew deep inside. 
am I a part of this American hip hop culture, even though I was born in New York? Um, I love to write poetry. And that's, if you look at a lot of the rappers today and you hear their stories, a lot of these guys didn't find out they were rappers. So they were in their, their 18, 19, some of these guys, right? And they started doing it like Jay Cole and they loved it. But, you know, I discovered it at a pretty early age. And I, I love the art form and I love the craft. And I thought that it was a great way to express yourself poetically. Um, never knew that I was going to have a career in the business at all because, again, I felt like I was out of place. I knew nothing about how to get a record deal, how to produce a record. But I love the sound and I love the culture. So you released your first album in 1994. And like a lot of artists at the time, you did it all indie. Jay-Z, Black Moon, there's tons of artists at that time doing it indie. But you got your album into record stores, right? And that was like, back in the day, you couldn't just get an album in record stores. It wasn't like Spotify and, and Apple Music, right? Yeah, I, yeah. That, those are the dinosaur days. Back then, what you had to have is you'd have to be with one of the big majors. So Warner, Epic, Sony, RCA, BMG. And back then, the big deal was a barcode. So a barcode was an, a code on the back of an album that basically told you where that content and album came from and who the artist was. and so on and so forth. And um, the big stores is Sam Goody, you know, Camelot Music, um, Warehouse Music, Virgin, all the big stores, they, they didn't really accept product from, from local bands unless you were on an indie distribution, like an indie platform uh, through one of the major labels. Um, but what I knew that if I could get my hands on a barcode and I was, you know, and what I found out the P&A was a whole different thing because there's only so much shelf space in record stores. So at that time, if you were in the W section, it was Wu-Tang, it was Warren G, it was Y Club. The back, right? <laughs> yeah. So you wouldn't really get, and you wouldn't get shelf space. So yeah. you'd either have to pay for the, 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 the P&A or you would have to have enough following in that community. Either you are a local band it was doing really well, so people wanted to buy your music and the local store decided to support you. Um, or you had to walk in there and beg them to put your product in there and create in-stores with you and that you can rally up enough people that it would make economic sense for the store to give you the shelf space and then they would have to believe that you could also sell the product and sell the follow-through. So um, that's how I got in the store. So that's I got right, Because back in the day, you walked into a warehouse, a tower, a virgin, and whatever they were putting in front of you is what you knew was out. There was like that new release rack. And if you were just somewhere in there, it was like impossible to find unless you were like a hip hop head or you really into some genre of music and you were paying attention. It was just like a different world. There was no recommended what you may like because you listen to this sort of thing. It's like you had to know. So exactly. It wasn't easy getting a, your product in there and then be anyone to know it's in there. Yeah. And, and, and you nailed it. You, you, you hit it right on the head that, when you walked into the record store, they would have the new release wall in Sam Goody or Warehouse Music. And then they would have price and positioning that you could look at a rack in the store of an album that you never really heard of. It could be indie rock. It could have been pop. And if you saw 100 CDs on a shelf that was beautifully merchandised and it said new release now, $9.99 or $14.99, you know, a lot of buyers bought music on impulse because back then you had the listening stations and you could actually walk in. I remember before that there was no listening station. So the listening stations came in like 95, 96. It was like with, with CDs, the listening stations came in. I don't think yeah. they had them with tape. Yeah, they didn't have them with tape. And you could basically walk in 
And yeah, yeah, they didn't have them with cassette. They had them with CDs, correct. Right. And you could walk in and actually listen to an album. Well, what you'd see is what was interesting. You'd see kids listening to the listening station, which is really funny. And then you would see album one, two, three, four, maybe on that top 15 were the top 15 records, number one, number two, number three, and categories, pop, rock, or whatever. And then you'd see kids just pressing one, going to the next one, and the third one. And then after you get to the third or fourth record, if they kind of like the vibe of what they heard, they picked one up and walked towards the counter, right? And, and there was no real method of the, 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 the album business was still very robust where people wanted the album and the artwork. There was, it really wasn't a singles business then. It was about having the full-length CD. Um, again, back then you had Billboard magazine and a lot of artists, Billboard wasn't digital back then. So you kids didn't know, they only knew what they were listening to on the radio and seeing on MTV. And for them, what they saw on MTV, BT or the radio locally, to them, that's what they should buy. Yeah. And for hip hop, it was like the source, like you needed to get like a mention or a view in like the source. Yeah, it was source. It was a source. It was rap pages. It was Vibe magazine. It was hip-hop beat. If you weren't in one of those, if you didn't have any visibility, it was very hard for you to convince the urban buyer. And if they didn't see you on BET or hear you on black radio, it was very hard to tell a story. No one discovered new mu music. It was all about what the major seven labels were promoting. And you worked with, I saw Johnny J, who obviously was Tupac's big producer and the Outlaws. Was that before or after Tupac passed away? I actually met Johnny J before Tupac passed away, but then after I ended up working with him after Tupac passed away. And Johnny J, sadly enough, has passed away since as well. But, but I was very close to Johnny J. And I had, in two occasions, I was able to meet Tupac Shakur, so that was beautiful. Uh, but Johnny J was very talented and he was a, had a great sound. Uh, and, and he was Tupac's sound. He was probably about 60 to 70% of Tupac's music. Yeah, people don't realize that he was like Tupac's right-hand man on production end. I mean, he did so much of those of those records, especially the last two. But he he had a mysterious death too, right? Well, what well, well, I'll tell you what happened was one night Johnny J, sadly enough, invited me to the recording studio and I went by to see him in Glendale. This is probably about a year before he passed. Uh, and he was recording in the studio and, and I walked in and there was no one in the entire studio. There was no engineer. There was no one. And uh, I look, and he was he was basically sleeping on the, the 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 SSL board, and he was bleeding from the nose. So I looked at him, and I he got I woke him up, and you know I saw the blood coming down, and I said, "Bro, are you what's going on? Should I call nine one one? Oh my God, right?" And he was like, "No, no, no, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay." And you know that's when I knew that there was something wrong. And then after that. I heard that he had got locked up. He, I think they had pulled him over. Don't quote me on this. I think either he was driving drunk or under the influence. Something was wrong. Yeah. They ended up locking him up and putting him up in prison. The story that I did hear from family members and friends that he, went, you know, he ended up committing suicide when he was there. He ended up ending his life. That's, that's so sad. I mean, that guy was so talented. Yeah, he actually jumped from uh, the third rail or the second rail or third floor. Crazy, man. Talk about Rick Ross, and you did a song together named Rich Together. How did that come about? And Rick Ross is a good friend of mine, and of course, he's someone that I look up to. He's very influential, very smart guy um, in, the, in the culture, in the business, and he's got, had a long, successful career. And we met, and we started talking, and he said, hey, 
why don't we do something together? And I was like, yeah, let's do something together. And I went out to Atlanta and spent some time with him and we recorded a few records and we had the Rich Together record. And he was like, hey, you should, you know, try to do a deal with this record and put it out. And I was like, I'm just going to put it out very indie. I'm not really interested in, in pushing it at a major label or doing any of that. Um, and so he still decided to do the record with me. We did it. And it was fun working with him. We shot a video for the record and uh, he's super talented. Uh, and it was an honor to work with Rick Ross. And then you worked with uh, Tyga for a while. Yeah, so from 2017, uh, I joined Tyga and I became the chief operating officer for his business. And that role was basically, he wanted me to manage him at the time, but I didn't want to manage an artist. I wanted to come in and really set up the business because I made so many mistakes in the business myself that I knew that like all the do's and don'ts of being a recording artist now, so he was already like a very famous global artist, right? Uh, Tiger didn't have to sell music on the street or sell it out of the car like I did. Or, um, but what happened was is that um, Tiger approached me and he said, look, I know that you've been hustling on the streets for a very long time. You know the business. So we teamed up in 2017 and saw know what happened next. Right. And then just to talk about a little bit about Israel, um, you eventually went there with him, but before going with him, were you there before, right? What, what made you decide to go to Israel your first time? Uh, what made me decide to go to Israel the first time was, um, when was that? 2006, 2007, I think it was. Um, I was working with T TBN Praise the Lord Network. They built their television full-power TV station that operates in Israel called Praise the Lord TBN. Um, and so I heard that there was going to be a big trip visiting Israel and I was always interested about the story of the Bible and so on and so forth and it was a good way for me to travel and go see and go out Israel and 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 go touch the Holy Land it was unbelievable for the first time being able to connect with God's people and I, I just felt that in my heart that it was God's people it was God's land it was just uh, my own personal spiritual feeling it was amazing Right. And it's like people have a, a strong misconception of what Israel is. And it's like only once you go and visit, do you really realize how magical a place it is? And, and you, how many times have you been back since? So I've been back now about one, two, three. So I've been back now three times. And so the second time is what, with Taiga or t a time before then? Uh, so no, the second time was a time before then I went back again and, and just trekked through Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and and Getty and the Mount of Olives, I went back again because I was just so taken by the experience when I was there uh, with TBN's people. Um, and it was just uh, just such an amazing feeling. And I was like, you know what, I got to go back again and get more of Israel. Uh, and so when Taiga reached out to me and said, hey, what do you think about, um, you know, I got, I got booked in Israel. Uh, what do you think? And I said, man, Israel's amazing. Um, and I said, man, we, we got to go. It's different. You got to come and see it. And and he said, look, you know, come with me on this trip. And I'm like, look, let's roll. And I called a bunch of my friends there. They met us at the airport. And I said, look, I want you to take us out and size sightsee and take us out while we're there and give Tiger the full experience of Israel. Because even though I've been there a couple times, I didn't understand Israel's very big, very big place. And, you it's know, like small, but it's big. That's the crazy thing. It's like such a small country, but there's so much to do there and see there. That, yeah, that you can go back so many different times and you need to spend a lot of time there for the size it's tiny yeah you're right and there's so many nooks and crannies in israel and so many 
special stories and special spiritual stories if you're a spiritual individual because we know that there's the, the foundation of Islam is there, the foundation of, of course, Judaism is there, Christianity. So Israel lends something to everyone, right? And so when you're there, I think, you know, taking your time and really understanding why you're there. Like I tell my friends, just to go and do a couple of concerts there for two days and three days and leave is not the experience of Israel. To, to, to get the experience of Israel, you really have to be there, in my opinion, two weeks. So yeah, one of my friends who's Christian, I had the fortunate opportunity to take him to Israel. And he didn't realize, and he was blown away, that you can go see where Jesus is buried. You can go see where Mary's buried. You can go to the Galilee where Jesus walked on water and to go see where Jesus was baptized. I think people don't realize it's not your normal tour stop. It's something so much more powerful. Yeah, and, and, and that, that's, that's true, Ari, and that's what makes it so unique is the biblical part uh, of Israel, like I said, from the, you know, from the Torah to Christianity to Islam, everyone can find something spiritual from their past within Israel. I think Israel is kind of like, to me, the bullseye of everything, the story of the Bible, the story of the Torah, uh, and there's just so much there. So that's what made it so easy to get Tiger excited about Israel because it was like, let's go see where Jesus walked. That was the big seller for everyone. I'm telling you, it's one of the most geographically, it's one of the most beautiful countries that I've ever been to in the world. I tell people all the time, if you haven't been to Israel, you gotta go. And people just can't understand it. Like, I don't know, every time I mention I've been to Israel, everybody just freaks out. I just don't get it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's weird. And I think it's just part of it's too is like the media portrayal of it is a lot different than when you get there and start meeting and talking to people and it's just a whole different vibe. Um yeah. to move on to move on a little bit. So philanthropy, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. So Haiti obviously had a massive earthquake a few years ago and you helped with those recovery efforts. Yeah, yeah. So I was working um at the time with an organization that I was going to be doing some for-profit business with, but they had a non-profit side as well. And um, that was a year before the earthquake kicked off, before that happened, a tragedy that killed more than 250,000 Haitians and Americans and other people from around the world that happened to be there. It was just a very trying time to go into Haiti about a week to six days to seven days after the earthquake happened was something out of a war zone. you never seen anything like this before. This country was just demolished. It was unbelievable. Is it even recovered yet, or is it still recovering? You know, visiting Haiti and going back, you know, Haiti already had a lot of political unrest and, of course, you know, difficulties with their economics there and the government and jobs where 80% of the people don't have work. Um, there's not much of an economy there. Um, so taking that in the equation and the earthquake Haitian people are just so resilient. And even me being Haitian-American, going there, I can't believe these people from my country uh, have a will to survive and what they're able to do with all the atrocity and all the stuff that's happened there. People still smile every day. The problem is you have, you know, you have issues within the government and then you have the issue with education and jobs. And so those things really, really ravage the country every year after year. And then then you have things like um, all of the weather patterns that happen there. So you have the big you know, storms uh, and, and all those things that also 
uh, where Haiti's set geographically, which hurts the people a lot and the economy there. But but resilient people. Yeah, it's amazing culture too. So we like to end the podcast with me just saying five different things and you can say a word or two back. You can say a couple sentences, just whatever pops in your head. Um, so Rick Ross. Amazing, giant, big papa, uh, super talented and the boss. Love it. All right. So Real Housewives, because haven't you appeared on the Real Housewives before? Yeah, that was so funny. Yeah, I was there with, I was getting, I was working with Joe Della Rosa getting her a, a record deal on Capitol Records back in the days. That was real funny, man. All right, 90s hip hop versus today's hip hop. Uh, 90s hip hop, um, I would say artists from the 90s just saw things differently. Um, they, they were really, you know, um, um, you know, creating the path and creating the culture. Uh, there was a different style. Um, there was a different message. Um, it was always from the streets. Hip hop has always come from the streets. It's always a voice of, of the of the ghetto and, and the struggle of what's happening. But I think today's artists uh, and what artists talk about today are much different from what artists spoke about in the 90s. In the 90s, there was always issues with crack, cocaine, and different things like that within the community. But I think today it's so lifestyle driven, but also, you know, it's just, it's, it's not to me as organic and real as it was 20 years ago. I think 20, 25 years ago, the messaging just came from a different place. It was just said differently. I, I can't explain it. Yeah. What, and what about Haiti? Haiti? Yeah. What pops in your head when you say Haiti? When I think of Haiti, I think independence It's the first independent black republic you know, in the world uh, in 1804. And Haiti has meant a lot to America and to Africans all over the world. There's a great story there of what Haitians were able to do to liberate themselves in 1804. And I just think of independence when I think about Haiti. Love it. And then uh, the boycott movement against Israel. Look, COVID-19 shows us how foolish we really are sometimes as human beings. And, uh, you know, COVID-19, it took a virus to let us all know that we're the same. Right. And, and it took a virus to let us know that we can all in a minute lose our rights to touch each other, hug each other, kiss each other, and eat dinner next to each other, or even have a drink in the same room together. We've all became strangers to the world and we've all became strangers to humanity. And I think that the boycott towards Israel is ridiculous. And I think that we need to look at each other now and look at us, look at ourselves as a different world today. And we're still gonna have prejudice after this. We're still gonna have racism. We're still gonna have all of the issues that we have, but I hope people could learn something from this experience and know, and you know, boycotting a country like Israel that, that, that Jews have done so much for the world and Jews have been, you know, um, massacred. So when you look at the Jewish people contributed great things to education, technology, science, aviation, on and on and on and on. So I think this whole boycott to Israel has to stop. I think it's, it's just horrible. I think that there's not enough allies getting involved to say that this must stop. I think there's a lot of different political interests that are straddling the fence on both sides. So it's very hard for them to get involved in 
because they have their own motives. But uh, I'm for Israel and I stand with Israel. I love Israel, you know, and then I love the Middle East and I love Saudi Arabia and I love Bahrain and I love Dubai and I love Iranians. I have friends from all over the world. Yeah. Um, and, but, but, but Israel definitely, um, as a very small country, um, needs to support. Yeah. And there's more that unites us all than separates us. And especially when it comes to things like music and cultural events. Yeah. And, and that, that's one of the things that I think music is a great voice. Music and touring. And the last time we, we got together was talking about how do we stimulate more live performances in Israel and get artists to believe that coming to Israel is not going to be a detriment to their career. Um, and, and we had an open talk and a conversation that I was invited to. Um, look, everyone that I know, or all the performers that I know that have been to Israel had an amazing time. And I just think that this boycott thing is getting old now. I think it's old. I, I think there's a lot of old school ideology set in place that pours into the young people. Young people don't want to hate another young person. Young people want to share culture. Young people want to share music. They want to share food. They want to share their clothing ideas and, 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 and beliefs. Nobody wants to fight, you know, and, 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 you know, I just think that, that you have a group of extremists out there that are driving, um, driving uh, the gasoline into the fire. That's what they're doing. And they do it through social media. They do it through the internet. They do it through cyberbullying. They do it through all of these different methods to try to get their point across. And, um, you know, I'll stand behind Israel for the rest of my life to try to make a difference. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. Appreciate it.